Well, you know, if it's humiliating to find out that you were wrong about something, it is devastating to find out that you were wrong about everything. I was wrong about something once. I was wrong about Tiffany Williams. Who? Well, let me explain. I was a freshman in high school, and like all other freshmen, I'm just trying to kind of figure things out and get a hold of what life's about. And as we all know, what I'm really after is to find a girlfriend, because as we all know, that's literally the meaning of life for a freshman in high school. And when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I meet this girl named Tiffany Williams. By the way, I have full authority and permission to tell the story, by the way. And I don't remember where or when or how it is that we first met. I think it was at a football game, but immediately we hit it off and we had this great connection. And I thought, man, I don't know what everyone else is talking about. Meeting girls is, is easy. This is easy. And I, and I realized that in the first month of high school, I'm, I'm going to have a girlfriend. And she was kind of pretty and funny. And we, she laughed at my jokes. And, and we would always accidentally wind up sitting together at sporting events. And, and, and I mean, she gave me every indication, or so I thought, that she felt the way about me that I felt about her. For instance, before a school dance one time, th th we had lots of dances and it wasn't like, you didn't come as a couple, it just everyone could go and then you could just kind of do whatever. And before one of those dances, she asked me one time if I would only dance with her. She said, and I quote, now, you're only gonna dance with me tonight, right? <laughs> of course I am, will you marry me? <laughs> This is, this, this is a done deal. I mean, put this one in the books. Jerry Gilcher is a wanted man by the ladies. And so I'm just, I'm just elated. I'm just, I'm just exhilarated. And, and my hopes are up. I can't think about anything else. I'm telling all my friends that I'm going to date Tiffany Williams. I mean, we're practically together already. I mean, I am on top of the universe, at least for a while. The very next morning, I show up to the baseball field. I played baseball, and I was playing in this fall season baseball league. And I show up to the field, and, and one of the guys on the team apparently was a friend of Tiffany, I guess. I still don't know the connection, but, but he goes, hey, Jared. He's warming up on the field. And he, hey, Jared, I was talking to Tiffany, Tiffany Williams last night. The very same dance where she asked me if I would only dance with her, okay? So this is the context. And I guess what she said about you. I don't know. What? He said, she goes, so who is that dork with the big ears and the braces? <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm trying to process here. It's not exactly what I expected to come out of his mouth, and I'm thinking, okay, who is the dork with the big ears and the... <laughs> Wait a second. She's talking about me. I'm the dork with the big ears and the braces. How did I miss this? How could I be so stupid? How, how did I misread the signal so badly? How did I not know that she was mocking me the whole time? How did I not know that she found me repulsive and dorky? How did I, how did I miss this? This is very excruciating for a 14-year-old with big ears and braces. You have, to, you have to appreciate the situation here. It's very painful and humiliating. And you see, the point is, be that as it may, that short freshman drama saga with Tiffany Williams is nothing compared to when a man named Nicodemus found out that he was wrong about everything. And you know Nicodemus, right? He was a religious leader during the time of Christ. 
a quasi-spiritual celebrity. He was among the religious elite. He was a scholar, a professional theologian. He was valued and esteemed and revered and respected. He had everything in life figured out, or so he thought, until, that is, he knocked on Christ's door late one night, and then he had his entire universe come apart at the seams, and then he realized that he was dead wrong about almost everything. And that saga with Nicodemus, when his entire world gets turned upside down, is exactly where we're going this morning. We talked about regeneration, new birth last week from Titus, and I want to revisit this from this text here. But the reality is, is that this morning what we're going to see, although it's about Nicodemus, it's not really about Nicodemus at all. It's actually about Christ and the crippling inability of sinners to obtain salvation on their own. This morning is about spiritual bankruptcy and how good works and merit and achievements are worthless to earn a spot in the kingdom. This morning is about the absolute necessity of being born again to get to see the kingdom of God. This morning is all about the miracle that God has to perform in the human soul for people to believe and be saved. This morning is all about the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone as the source of salvation. That's what this morning is about. What you're about to see this morning is the theological showdown of the century. In this corner, you have Nicodemus, a brilliant man, but self-righteous and spiritually dead. And in this corner, you have Jesus Christ, who unbeknownst to Nicodemus is God himself in human flesh, which means Nicodemus doesn't stand a chance. And he is about to find out that he is dead wrong about almost everything. And I don't know exactly what it is you came in here struggling with this morning, but one thing I do know, one thing I do know is that some of you here need humility. Some of you need holiness. Some of you need happiness. And some of you need hope. Some of you need humility. You want to be humble, you really want to be humble, but, but pride just comes so easily to you and you have no idea how you're going to kill it. I just want you to know that this morning is for you. Others of you, you want to be holy, you really want to be holy, but maybe sin and maybe even a very particular sin has you by the throat and you don't have any idea how you're going to cut loose of it. I just want you to know this morning is for you. And some of you are looking for happiness Not the cheap imitation stuff that the world talks about, but you want the real thing. You want joy. You want ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction in this life. And you need to know that where that is found is not in your achievements, but in Jesus Christ alone and what he accomplished for sinners like us. And some of you really need hope. Hope and I'm so glad you're here because that is exactly what Christ provides. A soul-satisfying hope is exactly what Jesus Christ provides, and it's all found in John 3, verses 1 through 10. So let's look at the text, and let's watch Nicodemus get the theological smackdown of the century. Here's where we're going this morning. Believe it or not, I have eight points. (laughs) Eight points. So here's where we're going. I want you to see eight realities of being born again. Eight realities of being born again that make you humble, holy, happy, and hopeful. That's where we're going. 
eight realities of being born again that make you humble, that make you holy, that make you happy, and make you hopeful. And yet I need you to know that before we look at even one of those realities, we have to go and look at the theological cage match between Nicodemus the scholar and Jesus Christ the Savior. So if you like outlines, I have one. Let's begin with the restlessness of a sinner at night. The restlessness of a sinner at night, verses 1 and 2. Look at the text. John tells us, Now there was a man from the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night. Stop right there. Do you want to know what makes this episode with Nicodemus so profound? One of the things that makes it so profound is how it connects to the end of chapter 2. And you remember how John chapter 2 ends, don't you? It ends by describing that Christ has the supernatural, divine ability to read people's minds and see the very secrets of their souls. He is God. Of course he could do that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 1, and I want you to listen very carefully for the connection, starting in verse 23. Now when he, that is Christ, was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he himself knew all men. And that he did not, have, he did not need anyone to testify about man because he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man from the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. Do you see the connection? Chapter 2 tells us that Christ can see the secrets of men's souls. And one such example of his ability to do that is in the case with Nicodemus. You see, the truth is, You cannot hide from Jesus Christ. You cannot fool him. You cannot pull the wool over his eyes because he has already known everything about you from all eternity, every motive, every desire, every craving that drives what you do. Jesus Christ knows and sees it all. And that is either a colossal comfort to you or it is terrifying. And John tells us that this man who Christ already knows was from the Pharisees. And we know all about the Pharisees, don't we? They weren't just religious leaders, but they were the highest legal representatives of the entire country. Their name literally means the separate ones. And believe it or not, they actually started off as a good thing. That's a great thing because they were zealous protectors of God's word, but over time they became obsessed with their own traditions and created a culture of self-righteousness and spiritual pride to the point that they murdered their own Messiah. And Nicodemus was a part of that group, powerful, political, influential, self-righteous, and spiritually dead. John tells us that Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the Jews which means he was part of the Sanhedrin, which means he was a board member of the most powerful religious and political party on the face of the planet. This means that Nicodemus made his living as a scholar and a leader and a professional theologian. He was elite, he was erudite, he was educated, esteemed, elevated, exalted. This guy was a big deal in Jerusalem and everybody knew who he was. And yet notice the irony of verse 2. He came to Jesus by night. 
and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one would be able to do the signs that you do unless God should be with him. Now, you noticed it, didn't you? Nicodemus didn't approach Christ in the middle of the day or in public at a coffee shop, but at night when no one could see him. Why did he do that? Well, you'll notice the text doesn't actually say why, but we've got our suspicions, don't we? I mean, already in the Gospel of John, there's hostility brewing against Christ, and no doubt Nicodemus is curious and intrigued, and yet he's probably afraid. Afraid of his comrades, afraid of public opinion. I mean, what are they going to say? What are they going to say when the guy with the, with the greatest theological education in the entire country is seen visiting the uneducated carpenter son? I mean, Nicodemus has a reputation to uphold here, and yet something is going on inside this man's soul. Something deep and profound and troubling. A rock in the shoe of his religion, a splinter under the skin, nails on the chalkboard of this man's conscience. And here he is under the cloak of darkness and notice how he opens the conversation. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one would be able to do the signs that you do unless God should be with him. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? Because although Nicodemus is respectful, enthusiastic, and technically correct, we can't really but help be a little bit disappointed about the way he opens the conversation, right? I mean, he calls Christ a rabbi. And, and that's true, Christ was a rabbi. He was, a, he was a, a scholar and a theologian, but he was not only a rabbi, was he? And then he says, we know that you have come from God. And that's true, Christ had been sent from God. He was on a rescue mission from heaven. No question, And he goes on, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, correct? No disputing that. He was a teacher, an incredible teacher who left his audiences mesmerized, but he was not only a teacher, was he? And then he explains how he arrived at his conclusion. For no one, no one is able to do the signs that you do unless God should be with him. And he was exactly right. You can't do the kinds of miracles that Christ did unless God is with you. All true statements. Well done, Nicodemus. Congratulations. And yet, and yet, as we're about to find out, Nicodemus was light years away from a full, authentic understanding of who Jesus Christ was because despite all of his fawning and flattery and gushing adulation, Nicodemus was no closer to heaven than an unrepentant prostitute. So with that in mind, I want you to pause here just for a second. I want you to carefully consider some of you perhaps, maybe, might be just like Nicodemus. You have some right answers. You know the lingo. You get the culture. You know how to blend into a congregation. But maybe, just maybe, there's no life in your soul. Maybe you're spiritually dead just like Nicodemus which I understand is a weighty thing to just kind of throw out there. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you unnecessarily fearful or introspective necessarily, but what I'm asking you to consider is if the kind of faith you have is a Nicodemus kind of faith. It is cool and casual and lukewarm and a little apathetic and which finds so many other things in life way more appealing than Jesus Christ. How would you know? How would you know if that was the kind of faith you had? Well, you ask yourself, 
You peer deep into your own souls. What do you love the most? For what do you hunger? What do you crave in your soul? What do you long for? What do you desire? What thrills you? What exhilarates you? What is it exactly that you want most when you are by yourself in your room and no one can see you except God? Because I just want you to know that the God that you worship is what you think about most when you are in solitude. And imperfect, imperfect though it may be, those who are spiritually alive want Christ more than anything. Even when they don't want him, they want to want him. Do you see? That's how you know if you are living or you're dead. The taste buds of your soul are acclimated to Jesus Christ as the fountain of your soul. And so the question is, are you living or are you dead this morning? Because I just want you to know that Christ wants to offer you life. And that brings us next to the reality of supernatural birth. We saw the restlessness of a sinner at night. Now we look at the reality of supernatural birth. Because we see Nicodemus comes in pretty confident to this conversation, kind of throwing his weight around. We know, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Oh, you do, do you? Well, we'll see about that. And Nicodemus probably even expects Christ to commend him and congratulate him and pat him on the back for his impeccable insight, but Christ will do no such thing. Instead, get a load of this, he, he totally ignores all of Nicodemus' flattery, he bypasses all the social pleasantries, and he pierces right down into Nicodemus' soul and proceeds to sink his entire world. Look at verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <laughs> you ever have one of those moments? You realize you were wrong about everything? A Tiffany Williams kind of moment? That's what this is for Nicodemus. The statement that Christ just made was like Christ taking a broom to the delicate cobwebs of his entire existence. And did you notice it said, Jesus answered and said. What do you mean answered? Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question yet. And yet it doesn't matter because Christ answers the question that Nicodemus should have asked, which is, how do I get to the kingdom and see God? And the answer is, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's the issue right there. Being born again. Because do you hear what's at stake? Do you see what's at stake? Unless one is born again, you cannot, I repeat, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Your citizenship in the kingdom is at stake. Your eternal soul is at stake. That's how big this is. Because what ultimately and finally determines if you possess salvation is not if you're a good person, not if you were raised in a Christian home, not if you've been to church your whole life, not if you did an altar call once or if you have been baptized, but if you have been supernaturally born again by God. That's how you know. And you can tell, can't you? If being born again is what's required for access into the kingdom, 
then Christ just implied that Nicodemus isn't going to step foot in the kingdom. Because with all of his theology degrees and moral achievements, he was not born again. This, you have to appreciate this, this would have clobbered Nicodemus like a two-by-four to the temple. To, to hear that all that you had accomplished as a way to earn and merit your own salvation, that you were lacking the very thing required to get in the kingdom, this would have been devastating. I mean, Nicodemus thought he was a shoe-in for the kingdom. I mean, he thought he'd be first in line, and he wasn't even close. And there are two questions here that we have got to get to the bottom of. Number one, what does it mean to be born again? And number two, what did Nicodemus understand by the phrase, and why was it so devastating? So number one, what does it mean to be born again? And that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And you see, to be born again, get this now, it is a miracle. A life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. You see, all people are born blind, dead, damned, and helpless, which requires that something supernaturally take place for you to believe and get saved. That's what Christ is talking about. Therefore, to be born again is a sovereign work of God where he instantaneously and supernaturally awakens a soul from spiritual death by the Spirit through the gospel, which allows them to see Christ for the treasure that he is and which produces in them the very repentance and faith by which they are saved. <laughs> in other words, if you didn't get all that, all being born again means is that even when you were dead, God walked up to the tomb of your dead soul and he said, live! And you became alive. And when that happened, in that moment, you saw Christ for the treasure that he is and you put your faith in him and you got saved. That's what Christ is talking about. And believe it or not, God speaks about this very same thing in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the very same thing, the new birth. Listen very carefully to Ezekiel 36, what God says. And I shall give to you a new heart and a new spirit I shall put within you. And I shall take the heart of stone from your flesh and I shall give you a heart of flesh and I shall put my spirit within you and I shall cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Do you hear what he's saying? To be born again is the equivalent to God doing a spiritual heart transplant in your lives, your cold, hardened, dead, resistant heart that hated God and defied God and ignored God was supernaturally praised with a warm, living, breathing heart that responds to God and loves God and treasures God and obeys God. And Nicodemus, he didn't have it. And maybe you don't either. But I don't want you to despair because you can have it. All you have to do is ask. That leads us to the second question. Well, what did Nicodemus understand by the phrase born again? And, and why was this so devastating? Well, we know exactly what Nicodemus understood because of how he responds in verse 4. Look at the text. Nicodemus said to him, How is it possible for a man to be born when he is old? He is not able to enter into the womb of his mother a second time and be born. Is he? 
See, Nicodemus is just staggered by what he's heard here. The, the new birth was a sucker punch to the gut, and so he responds in absolute disbelief. And, and many people think that Nicodemus is just clueless here, as if he actually thinks that, that Jesus literally means he has to somehow crawl back into his mother's womb and somehow be born a second time. And I say, let's give Nicodemus a little credit here, shall we? This man is a genius. He is a scholar, a professional theologian, the teacher of Israel. He had the highest level of theological education on the planet, which means he's not an idiot. He knows exactly what Christ meant. You see, rabbis in that day, they would debate back and forth using metaphors. Christ used a metaphor. He responded with the very same one in turn. This was a theological sword fight, and they were using a rabbinic way to debate to make a point. You see, when Christ told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again, he knew enough to get the point, and the point was, Nicodemus, everything you've ever done to merit salvation is worthless. It's worthless. With all of your diplomas, with all of your degrees, with all of your efforts and all of your moral achievements, you are at 0% download for salvation. You are not even close. You have to go back, Nicodemus, and you have to start all over again. Your old self has to be slain, as it were, and you have to be brought back again as a new person. Because although you've worked your entire life to secure a place in the kingdom, it has all been for nothing. That was the message. And Nicodemus got it. And we know he got it because of how he responds in verse 4. It's very highly emotional. No. No, you can't mean that. You can't be telling me that everything I've ever believed about salvation is wrong and that I have to start all over again. That I cannot do. I have worked too hard, I have fought too long, I have sacrificed too much to secure for myself a place in the kingdom, and now you're telling me that it's all been for nothing? You have got to be kidding me. No, I am not kidding you, Nicodemus. Your soul is in danger. Everything you've ever believed about salvation is wrong. And maybe, maybe there are some of you who can really relate to Nicodemus. Maybe your perception of Christianity thus far has been, well, the better the moral resume, the better the reward. The more you do, the more you earn. The better you are, the better you're off, when in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, salvation is not and never has been a system of accumulating merit to earn a spot in the kingdom. Getting to heaven is not and never has been about your performance or the accumulation of good deeds that outweigh the bad as if that were even possible. Rather, salvation is and has always been a sovereign act of grace in the soul that you receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't blackmail God to get it. Salvation is given to you and it is not for you. This is done for you and not because of you. And I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not as if good works don't matter. They do matter. It's just that they're worthless to merit salvation. 
Good works were never intended to be the evidence that God should save you. They were only intended to be the evidence that God has saved you. Hear the difference? I mean, I recently heard the story of a mountain goat that plummeted to his own death in one of the state's national parks. Not this one, another state that actually has mountains. <laughs> there's, this, there's this goat, this beautiful big goat walking along the, the edge of this cliff and all the tourists see this goat walking and of course they, they want a picture of this goat and so they get their cameras and their phones and they come up to this goat and they get closer and closer to this goat to move in for the picture and the closer they get, the more scared he becomes and he moves closer and closer to the cliff until he sees that his only way of escape was to jump off the cliff and plummet thousands of feet down to his own death. You see, that is a little bit like salvation. That's what Christianity does. It pushes you closer and closer to the brink of despair until you see you have no choice left but to jump off the cliff of your own works and achievements and trust only in the sovereign grace of God. And so if your understanding of Christianity, rather misunderstanding has been, just be a good person and God will let you in. You are in the same boat as Nicodemus and it is a sinking boat. Which means you need to hear this loud and clear. To get to heaven and see God, you have to become a new person. You have to become born again which means you need to jump off the cliff of your own works and merit to try to obtain salvation and trust only in Jesus Christ. So here's Nicodemus, poor Nicodemus, disoriented and probably a little offended by what he's just heard, and, and yet he's about to receive the knockout punch of the century. I mean, rather than take it easy on him, go light on him, Christ instead moves in even harder and punches harder and pushes even harder to push him to the brink of his own spiritual bankruptcy. Look what he says in verse five. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Wait a second, what do you mean? Christ, what do you mean water and spirit? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't mean. This is not the waters of baptism, but the waters of purification. This is not the human spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. You see, I believe to make sense out of what Christ is saying, we, we have to look for some other place in the Bible where both water and the spirit occur together in reference to the new birth. Because I believe that Christ is alluding to something that Nicodemus would have, or at the very least, should have remembered. And sure enough, there is a place where both water and the Spirit are spoken of in relation to the new birth, and it is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Listen very carefully for water and the Spirit. And I, says God, shall sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all of your filthiness and from all your idols I shall cleanse you. I shall give to you a new heart and I shall put my spirit within you 
and I shall take the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I shall put my spirit, there it is, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. There it is, plain as day, like a sunbeam in the rain, water and the spirit. The point is, the point is, regeneration is a cleansing and an awakening. You know that Jews used water in their ceremonies, right? But it was just a symbol. It was just a metaphor. It didn't actually do anything, but it was a picture of what regeneration would do to the soul. And Christ says that regeneration, new birth, happens by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who personally awakened your soul from the dead and had he not done that, you would be a slave to your sins even as we speak. And that right there, if you think about it, that that work of God, that sovereign work of the Spirit, that is one of the most strategic foundations for compassion and humility in our lives. Isn't it? I mean, if it took God raising you from the spiritual dead for you to believe and be saved, and it did, then, then how could we possibly feel even a millimeter of superiority over another human being again? How could one sinner raised from the spiritual dead not look with pity and compassion upon someone who is currently dead, who needs to be raised from the dead just as we ourselves had been when God saved us? Don't you see, if you want to be a gracious, compassionate person who really loves people, and I know you do, then you need to make this doctrine the object of your sweetest contemplation. And that's exactly what Paul said last week in Titus 3, 5. Isn't it about the new birth? He saved us. Listen for water and the Spirit. He saved us. Not from works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Here it is. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. It means everything and it changes everything and it is not a game, it is a joke. Wait, it is not a game or a joke, it means everything. That's what I meant. Don't quote me on that, okay? But that brings us next to the regeneration of the sovereign spirit. The regeneration of the sovereign spirit, verses six through eight. (laughs) Christ is really on a roll here really on a roll. And if what he has just said has blown Nicodemus' mind, he has not seen anything yet because he is, what he is about to hear is going to feel like a sledgehammer. Look at verse six. He says, the thing which has been born from the flesh is flesh. And the thing which has been born from the spirit is spirit. Do you, do you, do you hear his argument? because it is a death blow to human pride. Christ is graciously pushing Nicodemus to the edge so that he will despair in his worthless resources to earn salvation. And and you see it, right? The the contrast between flesh and spirit. Flesh, you know what he means by that? What he means is merely human. Moral resolve, willpower, that which human efforts and achievements alone can produce. And what can merely human efforts produce? What did Christ say? Nothing but more flesh. 
That's it. In other words, natural physical power doesn't produce supernatural results, only physical ones. Because make no mistake, make no mistake, we can change our behavior. We can alter our conduct. We can break some bad habits. We can keep the rules. We can overcome addictions. We can even change our personalities over time. But Christ is not merely interested in helping people turn over a new leaf, but in making dead people alive. I believe, Nicodemus, I think, I believe Christ is saying, Nicodemus, you can work your bloody fingers down to the bone but when it's all said and done, you will still be the same old Nicodemus, self-righteous and spiritually dead under the wrath of God, no closer to heaven than when you first began because, because, the, because salvation can never be obtained by human power and achievements and merit. But what about the Spirit? What does Christ say that the Spirit does? He says that that which is born from spirit is spirit, meaning the sovereign work of the spirit always produces supernatural results. In other words, the only one, and I repeat, the only one who could perform a supernatural awakening of the soul is God, the Spirit himself. That is ultimately the reason why you woke up believing in Jesus this morning, because God, the Spirit, through the gospel, awakened you to see because you remember what Christ says in John 6:63, right? The spirit is the one who makes alive the flesh profits nothing. Well, Nicodemus must have been standing there with his mouth hanging open because look what Christ says in verse 7. <laughs> Don't marvel. Don't marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. In other words, don't be shocked, Nicodemus. Don't be don't be surprised. Don't don't be shocked when I say that you must be born again because if that blows your mind, you're not even going to believe what I'm going to say next. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming or where it's going, so it is everyone who has been born from the Spirit. And there it is right there the absolute sovereignty of the Spirit in salvation. Did you see it? He just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing Nicodemus to the brink to see the the crippling inability of his own ability to earn salvation. And to do so, he uses an illustration, an illustration that proves, get this now, that being born again is not something that you control. Look what he says. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. And he's right, isn't he? The wind blows wherever it wants. It has a mind of its own, as it were. You can't control it. You can't predict it. You can't contain it. You can't resist it. You can't make the wind do anything it doesn't want to do. You are completely passive when it comes to the wind. Now, you can see the effects of the wind, of course. You can see the results of the wind, absolutely, but you don't control the wind. And here's the punchline. Look at the end of verse 8. Just like the wind, so it is everyone who has been born from the Spirit. <laughs> In other words, Nicodemus, 
To get to the kingdom and see God, you must be born again. But being born again is not something that you control. It is a miracle. It is supernatural. You are completely passive when it comes to the new birth. You have about as much control over the new birth as you do over the wind, which is nothing. The Spirit is the sovereign giver of life, and we are the undeserving recipient of that life. Because isn't that what happened to you when you got saved? Why is it that one moment the gospel was a joke to you, and the next minute it was the best news in the world? What what happened in between that changed all that? New birth is what happened. Regeneration is what happened. You see, you realized when you were hearing the gospel, because the gospel is the means that the Spirit uses to awaken you in the first place, but when you heard the gospel, you found out that you were a spiritually dead slave to sin and that your only hope was the sovereign, transforming mercy of the living God. And that is what Christ is getting, trying to get Nicodemus to understand. And it absolutely blew his mind because we arrive finally at the rebuke for spiritual ignorance. The rebuke for spiritual ignorance, verses 9 and 10. Because when Nicodemus woke up that morning and he combed his hair and he brushed his teeth and he ate his eggs and drank his coffee and read the paper, no one could have prepared him for what he was about to hear that day. No one could have told him, prepared him the fact that he was going to discover that he was absolutely wrong about everything. And look how stunned he is, verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? How can this be? How can you stand there and tell me that everything I've ever known or believed or taught about salvation is wrong? How can this be? To which Christ replies in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Note, definite article, the teacher of Israel. He was the most esteemed and distinguished scholar in, and theologian in the whole country, and he has no idea what Christ is talking about. Wait, hold on just a second here. You are, you are the teacher of Israel, right? Yeah. And you don't know about the crippling inability of sinners to obtain salvation on their own. You don't know about the absolute necessity of the new birth to get to the kingdom and see God. You don't know about the absolute sovereignty of the Spirit and salvation. How could you not know these things? You of all people should know them because they're in the Bible that you read and it is clear and unmistakable, Nicodemus. This was painful. This was a painful rebuke for his spiritual ignorance and his Bible illiteracy. You see, that night, 2,000 years ago, Nicodemus' world came apart at the seams. And what did it was the doctrine of regeneration. And you probably think I'm crazy, don't you? That this doctrine I hear can make you humble, holy, happy, and hopeful? Because it's not crazy not. And I'm going to give you very quickly, at light speed, by the way, I wouldn't even bother trying to write down notes, just listen for the next few minutes. I'm going to give you the eight realities of being born again that make you the most humble and holy and happy and hopeful people on the planet. Number one, 
Regeneration makes you humble. It makes you humble. In fact, this is a death blow to human pride and arrogance because it keeps us from having feelings of superiority over other people. Why? Because the new birth is proof that you have nothing to boast in except what was done in you, except the miracle that was performed for you, nothing to boast in except sovereign grace alone. Number two, regeneration makes you holy. It makes you holy. In fact, this is one of the deepest, deepest foundations to authentic life change and transformation. Why? Because when you got born again, you were freed from slavery to the suicidal pleasures of sin. You were dead. Now you're alive. And what that means is this, that real, lasting, satisfying victory over sin is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. Number three, regeneration makes you happy. It makes you happy. How? Because, because it is our assurance that no matter how dingy or disgusting our past was before Christ saved us, and mark my words, we all had a dingy past. Regeneration means that we have been cleansed by God to the degree that we are no longer damaged goods before the God of the universe. In Christ, God is not angry with you. In Christ, God is not disgusted with you. In Christ, God is a father to us. And what got you there was regeneration. Number four, regeneration gives you hope. It gives you hope. Why? Because it is our assurance that even the most hardened and resistant sinner can be conquered by the gospel. Even the most defiant family member or Muslim or co-worker who is seemingly unfazed and unaffected by the gospel can be overcome from spiritual death just as you yourselves had been when God saved you. Now I'm going to reverse the order. Number five, regeneration gives parents and future parents hope for our children. It gives us hope for our children. Why? Because the new birth relieves parents from the anxiety of thinking that they are the ones ultimately responsible to save their own children. And don't misunderstand, uh, regeneration doesn't free us to be lazy or have some laissez-faire attitude that, that, that doesn't seek to be faithful parents, but what regeneration does do is make you the kinds of parents who parent in such a way that help your kids see that they don't need just a change in their external behavior, but what they need is a new heart. In other words, regeneration helps us as parents not raise legalists. Number six, Regeneration makes you happy. It makes you happy. Why? Because this, this is one of the clearest displays of the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is so precious because that means that is his means to secure for himself his place and our affections. It is his way of doing whatever it takes to preserve himself as our highest treasure forever. And that is good for us. Number seven, regeneration makes you holy. It makes you holy. Why? Because regeneration signals the beginning of your relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a buzz to be felt, but the third person of the Trinity who strengthens you and supplies what you need to do what God commands. Last but not least, number eight, regeneration makes you humble. It makes you humble. Why? Because regeneration is the deepest explanation, not only for why you are saved 
currently, but why you will stay saved permanently. You see, you woke up believing in Jesus this morning, ultimately as an act of sovereign grace in the soul. <laughs> so your new birth is the assurance that you will persevere to the end and you will get to heaven and see God and enjoy him with everlasting pleasure forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we marvel at the new birth. It's almost too hard to fathom that you have done this. And yet we are so grateful, Lord. We're not complaining. We're not complaining at the new birth. We are so grateful for it, Lord. It is everything. It provides everything we've ever wanted, oh Lord. We want humility. We want holiness. We want happiness. We want hope. And it comes through the new birth. I pray for awakening in this room awakening and renewal and transformation. I pray that we would be people who marvel at sovereign grace and to know, O oh Lord, that you have no obstacles that cannot be overcome. There is hope in the power of the gospel, which is your instrument to awaken rotted, decomposed spiritual corpses and bring them to new life and faith in you, Lord. Help us to not only be possessors of new birth, but to be proclaimers of new birth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I need you to bear with me just for a, a couple minutes here, please. It, uh, we won't go super long over, but uh, I have a couple things, family things to, to say to you. Uh, things that I think will be an encouragement to you and, and things that will be helpful to you. So this is good news, all good news, but it's a family moment here. So bear with me just a, just a few minutes here. Uh, first thing, uh, I have two things here, and, and here they are. Number one, um, the elders at this church want to thank you for your patience. You guys have been through it. You guys have been through a lot. And I know I'm a Johnny-come-lately. I'm, I'm late to the party here at Christ Community. This church has been going for a long time, long before I got here. And, and I know that hard times have happened and you have persevered well. And the elders want you to know that we are grateful to you. And yet we, we also just want to thank you for your patience because as all of us, me especially, me, yeah, I mean, we're asking a little bit to be sympathetic. We have had to kind of pick up a thousand different pieces here. And we know that our communication with you has been less than great and that's not because we don't care or not because we're not working or thinking about you all the time because we most certainly are. We are just trying to get our heads around everything so that we can know even what to communicate you, communicate to you. And so, so that's, that's where we're at. And so we are trying to pick up all these pieces to help us be a healthy church once again. And so, but again, I want to commend you for your patience with us and, and me especially. Um, and, and, and now I think that after we've done some thinking and praying and planning and strategizing, I think we are now in a place to communicate to you exactly where we are and where we're going. And that is exactly what the next month and a half is going to unfold. Um, another thing is that you need to know is that we are really wanting to work on communicating with you. Um, we want to put some practical, strategic things in place, not only where you hear from us, but also where we hear from you, which brings us to uh, what we are going to do now, uh, which would be a great service to us and to the church as a whole. We're actually going to send you a survey. 
We have a 12-question survey that will be in your email inbox. Eric, if you want to send that in the afternoon, that'd be great. Um, a 12-question survey that will be sent to each of your emails if we have them. And um, it's, it's really quick. Um, it should take literally five-ish minutes. Um, there's some uh, simple click yes or no. Remember, remember those uh, bubble tests? Those, you know, you, you, you circle in the bubble of, you know, kind of multiple choice things. Um, really easy. There's a couple that you can fill in at the end. It's completely anonymous. Uh, when you hit when you hit done at the end, uh, the results will go to some place in California. They'll tally it up, and then they'll send it to someone, and we'll get the results, no names. Although I will say, I would encourage you, since you are our flock and we love you, that if you have real serious concerns and questions, that we want you to come talk to us. We have nothing to hide, and, and we have, you know, there's no kind of secret, you know, Illuminati meetings where only secret things are heard. I mean, we are, we are an open book to you, and, and so, but, and we really, and hear me, I really mean this, we are not going to forge ahead without getting getting um, really valuable wisdom and input from you. We really want your wisdom and input because this is our church. Okay, so we want your input. So hit done at the end. The, the results are anonymous. It'll just take five minutes, and that's our way. That's one of probably many surveys that we want to do so that we can hear from you, okay? We want to hear from you. Now, if you have ideas, that doesn't mean we'll take all of your ideas, but we do want to hear from you. I, I trust you understand that. Uh, number two, um, last thing here, uh, I want to tell you about the announcement, uh, about the intent to sell the, the Mansfield property. As you all know, we have some property down in Mansfield, a sweet piece of property, and, and, and you all know, who have been around to know the story, that there once was a time when the church was planning on uh, planting and building in Mansfield, and, and the elders and, and people involved in that decision made the best decision they could with the information that they had, and, and they could not have foreseen the things that were to occur after that, and, and, and it brought about a, a good God-ordained trial for this church. And I know it's not been pleasant, I know it's not been easy, and I know that we sort of feel like nomads and exiles and people kind of living in tents. To be totally honest, I think that's a good thing for us. And I'll explain why. But uh, first thing I want you to know is, is that um, since there is this intent to sell the property, we want you to weigh in on that. So, so members, uh, on September 1st, we're, we're going to stay a few minutes after the service and have you weigh in on that decision. Um, we're not just looking to rubber stamp it. We want to hear from you. We want to we get your input about that. Also, the elders didn't know I was going to do this, but I would actually ask them to wait up front over here so that if you had any more information you needed, you could just ask them directly about Mansfield or the future or what we're going to do. So, so please do not hesitate to do that. We need to hear from you. We want to talk with you. Okay, so September 1st is the kind of voting date on that, but uh, please come talk to us and get more information about it. Now, here's my encouragement for you. I know that, that it, it can feel discouraging to be in this place. We wanted to do one thing, went to a school, went to another school. It's like, what are we even doing? Are these guys just out to lunch here? Um, and the answer is no, we're not out to lunch, but we are imperfect men. But I just want you to know that um, you, know, you might be discouraged, and no one blames you for that. No one blames you at, at all. We totally get that. And transition are, transitions are hard, especially the kinds of transitions this church has had to, to go through. But the elders want you to know, to steal a quote from the Batman movie, um, it's always darkest just before the dawn. It is. It's always darkest just before the dawn. And, and, and you remember what I said to you on my first Sunday as the lead pastor of this church? I looked out at you and I said, I know we don't look like much, but I see potential here. I see potential because I just want you to know I was not going to leave Spokane for nothing. 
It was a great church, big church, healthy church, lots of things happening. I had a flock of college students that I loved, and I was not going to leave them for nothing, but I did. Why? Not because I want you to feel sorry for me that I left something that was awesome. I, I, I left because I saw something here. I saw a, a refined core of people who had kind of been through some ugly stuff, but they were ready to rebuild. They were ready to rebuild. Sure, maybe it feels like we're wandering through the deserts carrying tent poles and, 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 and tents to, to kind of rebuild. But you know what? That's okay. That is okay. Because the church is not in Mansfield. The church is not in Grand Prairie. The church is not in Arlington. The church is wherever we meet. And wherever we meet, we will make an impact. That's what we want to do. And so I came here because I believe that this church is one of the only churches in Arlington. I'm not even kidding. If not the entire DFW area that has something unique to offer. I believe that with all my heart. That we have something to offer that is unique among every single church in this area. I'm not saying we're better than other churches. Don't hear that. Don't tell people that. Our pastor says we're the best church in the world. No one ever said that. I'm just saying I think we have something unique. And what we have unique to offer is a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. And we want people to jump on board. So... I know we look like nomads and exiles and pilgrims, and that's to our advantage. This church is a gift, and the Lord is at work. And we need to not think like the, like the Israelites did. Man, if only we were back in Egypt. If only we were back in Egypt. We had everything we needed. We had, our, we had our meat and our meals and our fruit and vegetables, and we had homes to live in, and now look at us. I don't want you to do that. And I don't want you also to think, well, we have to get to a place and then God's going to work here. No, God is at work right now, even as we speak. And I hope you have seen the fruit of what Christ has done. And it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of what Christ has done. So this church has had a lot of sweet chapters in its history and some sour ones too. But I just, I just want you to know that the sweetest chapters of this church are just a few pages away, okay? I did, they're just a few pages away, and I need you to pray, and I need you to spend time in God's Word, and I need you to plead like crazy for Christ to work in our midst, okay? That's what I wanted to say to you. That's what all the elders wanted to say to you. We love you, and we care for you, and I know we haven't always done the best job of showing it, but we really do, and we want to shepherd you and be friends with you and be part of a church that makes an impact for the Great Commission, Okay? Thank you. Thank you so much for your patience and your prayers, and I look forward to seeing what Christ will do. Sorry that took so long. Again, the elders will be up front here. Um, for any questions you have about the Mansfield property, you are dismissed. We'll see you next week.